Good morning, good morning. Another Sunday where we are not gathered together. Are you getting tired of this? Me too. I really am. But I do believe our God has called us to do everything we can to cooperate with procedures that help us to uh, knock down that curve and uh, see fewer people uh, brought into contact with the virus, and this is one way for us to do it. But we are praying and we are looking forward to the day when we can gather again. Uh, in our uh, time here where we are going to look at God's Word, one of the things we always do week after week is we pray. So let's do that again. Pray with me, would you? Father God, uh, this is a time of study. Uh, it's a most complicated time of study because it's happening in so many different locations. And uh, there are, in some cases, breakfasts being made and children being cared for. And it's up and down and at the screen and away from the screen. And Father, for you to speak to us, uh, we know that a lot of things have to be conquered and overcome. And I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that uh, this community of Deer Creek Church, even though it is at this time scattered, Lord, would be gathered around some device and uh, taking time to, to listen to you speak to them. Would you do that now, Father? Uh, I pray and I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, uh, and Matthew tells us how the events unfolded on that day long, long ago. I want to read these words from Matthew 21. Uh, Matthew writes and says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says something to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God. It's a most unusual start to Jesus' journey toward Easter. Unusual because its beginning is so incredibly different than its end. You could say that Palm Sunday is all about what we do when our, our visions of the future, our expectations, our desires, our plans don't match up with God's reality. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode a donkey into town, a borrowed donkey, I might add, uh, and he rode through a procession of people who were longing for someone to change their circumstances, to save them from their oppressors. And maybe, maybe they thought, this rabbi, this 
unusual rabbi with powers to do miracles, powers to feed the multitudes, powers to heal the sick, even powers that was rumored to raise the dead. Maybe this rabbi would find a way to rid Jerusalem of the Romans. And so these people are putting down their cloaks, they're laying down palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are hoping, they are hoping for deliverance. They're hoping for freedom. They are hoping for things to change. But Jesus, the man on the borrowed donkey, knows something they don't know. He knows that he's riding toward death and destruction and separation. He's fighting a much bigger enemy than the Romans. He's riding towards separation, not liberation. Separation from his holy um, heavenly father and separation from the Holy Spirit. Fair to say what was ahead of Jesus looked more like a pathway to despair than anything else. But the people didn't know and they didn't understand what Jesus was up to. He was riding toward a crucifixion. He was riding to take on God's punishment of their sins and ours. He was riding to defeat death, not the enemy they necessarily wanted him to defeat. And so their hope was very different than God's reality. God was up to something, something they couldn't even conceive, something far greater, something far more costly, something more needful than just getting rid of the Romans. And friends, this is just how God works. He's always doing more than we imagine. He's always fixing bigger issues than we are aware of. And he was doing that on the cross. And although I hesitate to compare these two, I would note that he is doing that even now as we process the coronavirus. You see, God is up to something, something big, something profound, something he wants to do in us, something he wants to do in his church, something he wants to do in the world. And we just don't know what it is because he hasn't told us. But guaranteed, guaranteed what he's up to is good. In his book, Lament for a Son, the philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff uh, recounts the suffering that he experienced after his 25-year-old son fell off a mountain in a mountain climbing accident in Europe. And these are the words he writes. He says, I have no explanation. I can do nothing else than endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and the resurrector of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off at its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss. To the most agonizing question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know why God watched him fall. I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. And that, friends, is really the story of Job all over again. You see, Job asks the question in the midst of his suffering, why? Why, God? Why me? Why this? And he gets no answer to that question. Interestingly, there is an answer. And the reader of Job gets to see that answer in the early chapters of that book. But that is the case 
with most suffering. There is a reason, there is an answer to the why question, but very often we don't get to know the answer. Uh, Job's friends, Eliaphaz and Bildad and Zophar and Elihu, they thought that they knew the reason for man's suffering, Job's in particular. You see, it was their idea that we were when a person is experiencing suffering and hardship, we are being punished for our sin. So if you're good, good things happen to you. And if you're bad, bad things happen to you. They thought it was just that simple. But simple, this is not. Sometimes Christians are too quick to make moral object lessons out of people's pain. And we say things like, well, you know, just, just hold on. Things are going to get better or hang in there. God will use this for good. And we have to be very careful here with the things we say and when we say them. Because while it is true that God can and will overcome evil that happens in our lives, that is true. And while it is true that God can and will use evil things to bring good things about, I mean, think crucifixion, for example, most evil thing that ever happened, and yet think of the salvation that was wrought through that. Uh, God does work that way. That is true. But the fact that God will overcome evil Keep in mind, never makes evil good. Uh, so the death of a loved one or another miscarriage, uh, a heart attack, cancer, uh, the death of a child, the coronavirus, a crucifixion, all these things are evil. None of those things are ever good. So when evil happens to us or happens around us, we find ourselves asking why? Why this evil God? And truthfully, we have no immediate answer. We don't know why God watches a sun fall off a mountain. We don't know why God lets a virus kill tens of thousands of people. We just don't know. Sometimes we just have to sit with the suffering and take our complaint to God. That's what Job did. That's what the whole book is about. And that's also what Jesus did when he was hanging on a cross. He quoted a psalm of lament, Psalm 22, hanging on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was Jesus lamenting to the father about his circumstances and his suffering. Job did the same. You know, when suffering comes to us or to someone we love, it's not wrong to cry out to God, to wrestle with God, to pour out our confusion, our pain, our anger, and all of our questions, point them in God's direction. Now, God may or may not tell you why. Uh, he may or may not tell you what you want to know. He may or may not tell you why you suffer or when the suffering will end. We just have to note he never told Job any of those things. And as far as we know, he didn't tell Jesus. But in both cases, God was up to something. In fact, God was up to something really good in his overcoming of evil. Uh, personally, the truth is, we don't want Palm Sundays. We don't want Good Fridays. What we really want is to just get to Easter. But here's the deal. If we follow Jesus, we have to accept the fact, embrace the fact that our faith is fully realistic. It's always fully realistic. It's never sugarcoated. The world is broken. Uh, it is full of all kinds of evil. In fact, if we're going to be wholly truthful here, 
There's all kinds of evil in us. We contribute to the pool, the cesspool of evil. And so suffering is inevitable. If you live long enough, you are going to suffer. And you're not always or even often going to get an answer as to why. Jesus said one time to his disciples, something probably they didn't want to hear. We don't really want to hear this either. But this is what he said. This was just before his uh, betrayal and arrest and uh, crucifixion to come. He said, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each of you, to your own home. In other words, you're going to betray me, Jesus is saying. You're going to leave me. You're going to flee, even though right now you're declaring your loyalty. He says, uh, you're going to be scattered, each to your own home, and you will leave me all alone, and yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. That's hope. That's faith. That's trust. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He's talking about peace in the midst of suffering and trial. In this world, you will have trouble. We've looked at this verse before recently. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And we hate hearing that because we want to order the chaos of our lives. We want to be in control, but things like pain and suffering remind us vividly that we are not, not really, not ever in control. It's so interesting to me when Jesus was suffering and dying on the cross of all people, Jesus could have been a true cynic. Why am I suffering? What have I done to deserve to be here? I don't deserve this. This is not fair. What good does it do me to be your son, heavenly father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But instead of being cynical, what Jesus does is he pours out his heart and his anguish to the Father. What he doesn't do is he never stops trusting. All the way to the cross, on the cross, and after, he never stops trusting. He never stops believing in the purpose that the Father has. And I could say neither to Job. Not really. You see, the temptation in our fallen world is to be a cynic. But understand, cynicism is the death of hope. Uh, In a world marked by fear or anxiety or sickness or death, a lot of people choose to be cynics. They stop hoping. Or they lower their expectations for the things that are going to happen to them in their life so far down that, you know, that way they can't be disappointed no matter what happens. But I got to tell you, friends, cynicism is a hard, cold lonely way to live and die. Uh, Paul, when making the argument that Jesus is alive in 1 Corinthians 15, when making the argument that Jesus has been resurrected, he says this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. In other words, he's saying, if we're just making this up, Uh, If if this didn't really happen, this thing of the resurrection, if we're believing stuff that's not true, then we are truly pathetic. That's what he says. He says, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's saying is, is we should be cynics. If the resurrection didn't happen, we should be cynics. I mean, what kind of fool puts their hope in a man who rides a borrowed donkey? 
What kind of fool puts their hope in a man who managed to get himself crucified? How stupid is that? Better to wall ourselves off from hope, concentrate on taking care of ourselves. I'll just take care of me. Forget loving and forgiving and serving my neighbor. Forget that. Forget believing in a God who loves me and cares about me. Forget believing in a God who's going to save me, who did save me. Forget believing in the future or in eternity or something so stupid as heaven. How stupid is all of that to believe? Well, it's entirely stupid. Totally stupid. It's stupid to hope unless there really was a resurrection. And that's Paul's point. Unless Jesus really did come back from the dead, we should all be cynics. We should all just take care of ourselves. Number one, me and me only. You know, Jesus, when he was alive and teaching here on earth, said things like this. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. He said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And I've got to be honest with you, friends. These are just stupid things to say. This is Hallmark card nonsense. If Jesus isn't who he said he was. And here's who he said he was. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. You see, there's hope, friends. That is hope. Jesus knew hope. Jesus was and is hope. But you have to understand, uh, to hope is to be vulnerable. To hope is to open yourself up for disappointment, which Jesus knew plenty about. In Matthew 23, uh, Jesus is dealing with the disbelief and the opposition that's coming his way from the Pharisees. He's being rejected by them, most of them. He's being opposed, openly opposed by them. And it's in that context, he says this. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Here we hear and see the heart of Jesus. Jesus had often longed to gather his people together like a, like a hen gathers her chicks together. But they were not willing, Jesus says, and they would not listen. In fact, they ignored, they mocked, they disobeyed, they crucified him. That's what they did. And I'm just struck by how vulnerable Jesus is. Because you see, to love someone is vulnerable. It makes you vulnerable. And that means, if we're getting the the logic right here, that means that God is terribly vulnerable. Vulnerable in Latin means open to being wounded. That's what being vulnerable is, open, being open to to being wounded. And so think this through. God, our God, is a wounded God. And there you have it. The thing that makes Christianity different from any other philosophy, any other religion, this is it right here. A wounded God, who's ever heard of such a thing? 
It's so ironic. Often when we think of people suffering or when we think of suffering ourselves, we will often in that context think of God as, you know, being judgmental. Why is this happening to me, God? Or we'll think of God as being capricious or uh, moody. You know, is he angry at me? Does he like me? Does he hate me? What's going on? Or we'll think of God as being distant or uncaring. But vulnerable? Not so much. Open to being wounded? I don't think so. But friends, we forget really who God is. Because that is our God, friends. A God who is wounded for us. A God who is vulnerable because he loves us. And that is Palm Sunday. You see, God's suffering, rejection, and opposition is what the week leading up to Easter is all about. Uh, Hundreds of years before Jesus was actually born a babe in a manger, the prophet Isaiah looked forward into the future as the Holy Spirit inspired him. And he described the Messiah. He described the one who is to come. He was describing Jesus. And this is what he writes. He says, Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Not very important, not very significant. No one to give our attention to, let alone our worship. Isaiah goes on to say, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is God being wounded for us because God loves us. Jesus is God suffering evil for us. Today is Palm Sunday. And friends, that should remind us that our ideas about God and what God will or should do and how God will or should work are just often Very wrong. And the truth is, Jesus' suffering was both more brutal and more glorious, more senseless and more purposeful, more wrong and more redemptive than anything we could ever have imagined. Do you get that? God is working, friends. He's working in Jesus' suffering uh, to save us. He worked then. He's still working to that effect. Uh, He is working in our suffering to perfect us and to make us more like Jesus. There's one answer as to the question why. When we encounter suffering, when evil comes into our life, one of the things God is up to is the formation of the heart and the mind and the character of Christ in us. And here's the thing. It's not that we need to do more or be more or achieve more or believe more. All we need to do is hope in our great God, who is Jesus, a wounded God, a God who was beaten, a God who was stabbed, a God 
who suffered and died, who was defeated by evil, but only for a time so that he could defeat evil for all time. And this morning, you see, we hope in the God who rides a borrowed donkey. We hope in a God who goes to the cross, but who came back from the grave. We have a certain hope for the future precisely because Jesus came back from the dead. Now, next Sunday, we invite you to join us for worship. We are going to be celebrating the best news this world has ever, ever known. It is the news that can save you even if the coronavirus kills you. And and just a reminder, by the way, If the coronavirus doesn't kill you, something else will. And if you want a hope that overcomes death itself, then join us next Sunday. We'll be talking about that hope. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this rock solid hope. And we're puzzled and even confused and certainly amazed that this hope actually comes out of your wounding. It comes out of the suffering and the pain that Jesus bore for us. But it was that suffering and pain that more than anything else reminds us, displays to us the incredible love that you have for us. So, Father, our hope in Jesus is both for now and for the future. If we're encountering people or have loved ones who've encountered this coronavirus up close and personal, and it's devastating their body, and God forbid that it would, could lead even to their death, our hope would still be in you, Jesus, because you ultimately will overcome this, have overcome it, and that we believe. That is the truth. Thank you, Father, for being with us in this time of worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.